my wife stumbled upon a cartoon in the age this last week. Um, took a photo of it and showed it to me. I don't know who the cartoonist was, but, but essentially it was, was um, of a figure that I guess you, you might think is St. Peter, that myth of St. Peter up at the, the gates of heaven with a little bit of a checklist letting some in and some out. And of course, it is, it is more myth than fact. But in the line was our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, and, and then another couple of characters who you can only imagine from the way the cartoonist had portrayed them. In modern times, you might think of them as unlikely characters to be, to be perhaps you know, walking through the gates of heaven there. And the way the cartoonist had portrayed it was that these unlikely people were actually very, very welcome to be walking into heaven just as they are, tolerated with, with, with no, um, I, I guess, no restraint or, or so forth. But suddenly, um, St. Peter is holding up our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, who has publicly claimed to be a Christian, and the little caption was, not so fast. Um, um, and I guess the idea of the cartoonist was that you claim to be a Christian, but maybe you've got it all wrong. These other people who have no such claims, perhaps they've got it all right. And that was the essence of the, of the cartoon. And I guess um, in Western culture, it would be almost impossible, wouldn't it, to pass through this life at an intelligible age and not ask the question, hmm, who is God? Who is Jesus? His name comes up in conversation all around the Western world every single day in the marketplace and so forth, more often than not from non-Christians and more often than not in a, in a way that we might consider blasphemous. But just about everyone who lives in Western culture will be confronted with the name Jesus or God and will possibly at some point or another ponder, now, who is that? Who is God? Who is Jesus? And in our passage today, um, Jesus actually welcomes the question very much. In a, in a, a tender and intimate moment with the disciples, he actually quizzes them. He knows that wherever he goes, he throws people into crisis. He knows that as his father works through him, intervening in people's lives, often in miraculous and spectacular ways, that it leaves crowds of people and indeed individuals whose lives have been touched and forever changed. It leaves people asking the question, who is this? Who is this? And so Jesus invites the disciples to reflect on that. Everywhere he goes, there are people asking, who is this? Could this be somebody very special? And Jesus invites that question. And, and in Mark chapter 8, in this very, very special moment, just with the disciples, just alone, he asks them, so who do people say I am? It's perhaps the most important question a person could ever ask, who is Jesus? If you've got your Bibles, open them up with me to Mark chapter 8. And, and let's read these, these few verses here. 
Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 30, this astonishing moment, Mark has been leading us up to this point, this point of discovery. And Peter speaks, perhaps even to some extent, better than he actually knew. But it's a very, very profound moment in the life of the disciples who have chosen to follow Jesus. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They reply, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. What about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Who do you say I am? I recall old school days, more primary school than secondary school, but a little bit of both. Old school days where it was very, very important as you mixed with your peers to have an opinion about this pop band or that pop band, which is better, which do you like most? This football team or that football team or, or this sporting, sporting club or that. You had to have opinions and, well, you know what school's like. It's cruel. It's vicious. You had to have the right opinion. And then if you had the wrong one, you had to be able to... You had to be able to kind of stand by that. So very, very quickly I learned as I would declare that I was a Carlton supporter, it was very important to hang on to those 16 premierships that put us right up there with, well, later on Essendon would kind of catch up, but if you do it alphabetically, Blues is still before Bombers. But it was important to hang on to just a few little facts that would actually help you validate your argument. Who do you like more, this band or that? Who do you like more, this team or that? Who do you like more, this person or that? Who do you like? Who do you like? And at school, as you know, there's no sitting on the fence. You cannot sit on the fence. And it would seem almost exactly that kind of a conversation. Jesus will not let anybody sit on the fence. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? There are no fence sitters here. You have to make a decision. Is he who he says he is? And Peter answers in that moment, with this remarkable ply, reply, you are the Messiah, in Greek, the Christ. You are the, essentially the anointed one, the one who God promised would come and, and deliver us. Peter nails it. You are the Messiah. Jesus doesn't deny it. In fact, for purposes which we'll see very, very shortly, he says, okay, you got it. You nailed it. Don't tell anyone. Huh, odd, but we'll come to that. In Matthew's version, verse 16, Peter's reply is actually also met with a bit of a compliment. Ha, blessed are you, Simon Peter. But that was not revealed to you by man, but by God. He didn't arrive at this himself, and so it seems... Any revelation of God does not come from simply other people. It doesn't come from brilliant apologetics, although it can have its place. It doesn't come from superior reason. 
It comes from revelation from God. In fact, Tom was speaking about this here last week. The blind man from Bethsaida. It, it seems, as Mark is, is telling the story of who Jesus is, it's very important, this healing of the blind man, it's very important that he covers this story because symbolically, as a blind man's eyes are physically healed, Jesus is about to heal the spiritual eyes of his disciples. He is about to allow them to have this God-given moment, this revelation from God that could only come from God. And we saw in the, the passage last week and just, just prior to the one we're currently looking at, that people brought a blind man to Jesus and they begged him to, to touch him. This man was from Bethsaida. And so Jesus spit on the man's eyes and he put his, put his hands on him. And he said, do you see anything? He looked up, he said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. And once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes and they were opened. His sight was restored. And now it seems that God is doing the same thing, not in a physical fashion, but in a spiritual fashion. For Peter, who do people say I am? You are the Messiah. Well, that didn't come from you, Peter, or, or just from from other people, that revelation came from God, as all revelation of God does. There does seem to be, we call it conversion, this moment where, where God intervenes in our lives, and, and it is perhaps just a moment, but he shatters our defenses and God speaks right to the very spirit of us. And I know it's hard for us to, to understand. We can get our head around, can't we, the physical body we have. In fact, we can even poke it. We can tickle it. We can pinch it. We, can, we, we understand the physical body, but we know there's something going on inside our head. And so we call that our psyche or our, our mental state. And we know we have feelings and we, okay, well, that's, you know, sometimes those feelings seem to overtake our, our mind. Well, well, they're emotions, aren't they? And they can run away. And, and so we understand these different aspects of our being but the Word of God also speaks about another part of us, which is not so, not so tangible. Empirically speaking, it's very hard to measure. But the spirit of a person, that, that deep, deep, deep part of you, sometimes called the heart, the very center of your being, the real you. And sometimes it seems that God, in a moment, will shatter a person's defenses and speak right into that and give a revelation of his Self. For me, age eight, still remember lying in, lying in bed with my green cotton bedspread, teddy bear by my side, trusted friend and counsellor. <laughs> but dad, one up on teddy, just asking him as he every night would come in and pray with me. Oh, nothing like a praying dad, huh? So indebted. He'd come and say prayers at night, and I guess for eight years or so, I was with him, but I don't know if it really, really made sense. But at age eight, started asking dad questions because I realized not everybody believes. Do I believe? And suddenly I knew that dad's faith had to become Stuart's faith. Asked him questions about heaven and hell and good and bad and... Sin and God and Jesus, what do we do with the sin? And finally, things fell into place and I had that precious moment 
just as a child. But there's something special about a child's faith, isn't there? Where God crushed my defences, spoke to my heart, and a beautiful, beautiful thing took place in my life that changed me forever. Has that happened for you? Maybe. Or maybe not. Maybe you sit here this morning and this is still a foreign concept for you and you're not entirely sure, you kind of get where I'm going, but you're not entirely sure what conversion is or what would it mean for God to crush your defences and, and reveal himself for you. And, and perhaps this morning is, is that moment. Maybe, maybe. I would say at this point, if, if that is you and, and you're experiencing such a moment, just, just right now, just say, okay, God, keep speaking. I open, my, open up my heart. What doesn't make sense, make, make sense. He promises, you seek me, you'll find me. You'll find me. Perhaps to better understand these things and what it is that happens at that moment of conversion, we could look at a passage such as 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. These things are not readily apparent to the everyday person, and they weren't to us at some point in our life. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, we read that, you see, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There is a blindness over humanity. So what happens? What does God do? How does he break through? Verse 6, well... There is a point where God says, let light shine out of darkness. And he made, Paul reflecting on his own conversion, he made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. That's what happens. Romans chapter 10, verses 8 and 9 explains it a little bit further. You see, when, when that revelation comes to you, when the word of God comes to you in that form, and it is near you, it's in your mouth and it's in your heart, if at that moment you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's a promise from Scripture. That's how it happens. Moment of revelation, your defenses are crushed. Suddenly you are seeing into the spiritual realm, God revealing the light of his gospel to your spirit, who he is. And if in that moment you believe in your heart and declare with your mouth, you will be saved. I was talking with Dave and Joe. They're, they're just visiting for a couple of days and we've, we've had a lovely time catching up on old times and old friends. And, and just as we're chatting about things that are happening up in their church back home. Dave, Dave told me about a 75-year-old a man by the name of Gary. Um, from his best recollection, he's been a Christian all his life. But just recently, he signed up for a course, sort of an evangelism course, just prompting from God. And, and as the first part of the course unfolded, it was all about, all about what Christ has, has done for us and 
and afresh at the ripe old age of 75. His heart melted again as he came to understand afresh the significance of the gospel and developed once more a passion in him to to share that with his friends. And he was suddenly questioning so many things. How... Why haven't I told more people about this? Why haven't I shared my faith with more people? Why have I held back? How is it that there are so many people in my life that I could have told about this good news, but I didn't? And and in actual fact, he was even questioning, Dave said, have I actually been a Christian all these years if I've been holding all of this back? Now, we probably... Probably was. He was probably being a little bit hard on himself and a little bit unfair. But uh, effectively, he was probably asking this question. I had, as a young man, I had at one point a revelation from God, an understanding of who God is, and, and it changed my life. But I failed to listen to those important words, not from Scripture, but from an info, info commercial. Wait, there's more. How many of us have had that initial revelation and thought, well, that's that. I'm saved. We're good. I'm going to heaven. But we forgot to press into God and say, have you got more for me, Jesus? I know you as Savior. Should I know you as Lord? How many of us have got halfway but, but stumbled and perhaps have failed to recognize that there is, there is more that God wants to show us as he continues to teach us to obey everything that he has commanded. That simple little definition we often use to describe discipleship. And that's how this passage unfolds as well. Peter has just been blessed of God with this remarkable revelation of who God is. Wonderful. And so Jesus, wait, there's more Peter. Look at verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Wait, there's more. It's very, very good to ask the question, well, who do other people say I am? It's absolutely critical to ask the question, who do you say I am? But at some point, we must delve deeper in our Christian life, turn to Scripture and say, who does Jesus say he is? Because the answer to that question is possibly the only answer that matters. Who does Jesus say he is? And so Jesus began to teach them, and he, and he teaches them from essentially Isaiah 52, all about the suffering servant. And frankly, this was not... This was not a message that Peter was willing to hear. Listen to this. Isaiah 52 verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. 
beautifully and clearly, Isaiah is capturing the messianic task, the mission that was for the Son of God to fulfill. And Peter, misunderstanding it, said, ah, I know you're the Messiah, but by that I mean this, not this crazy talk, this suffering servant talk. What, what, what is all this about? I guess it's not that uncommon, though. Initially, we understand what it means to accept Jesus as our Savior, but it can be rather troubling when we hear some of his teachings, some of what it is that he asks us to do, some of the path that he lays out for us when he says, come follow me, take up your cross, and so forth. This is not what Peter expected, and, and it's quite possible you're sitting here this morning thinking, oh, I, I get that. <laughs> I've had those moments too. I was so happy in my early years in my faith until I, until I understood what it really meant to follow Jesus. And bit by bit, disappointment just continued to creep into my life in a paralyzing way. And maybe you are amongst that group of Christians who find themselves in this funny little rut in their Christian walk where I just feel stuck. I just did not expect Jesus to be like that. I did not think following him would, would result in this. And you're stuck. And it feels like a little bit of a rut. And it can feel like that when we don't understand. What's perhaps interesting in this passage is how harsh the rebuke is. Get behind me, Satan. It's kind of like, whoa, <laughs> seriously? Was it that bad? I mean, Peter misunderstood, but, you know, get behind me, Satan. Would he ever say that to me? What's going on there? Well, Peter was obviously distracted by human concerns. He had a different picture of Jesus, but it's not important who we say Jesus is. It's vitally important who Jesus says he is. And at this point, the harsh rebuke, I believe, was, was actually because here Peter threatened to interfere with the son's obedience to the father's will. Jesus was on a mission. He had a purpose. This, this constant refrain of Jesus, don't tell anyone. Keep this quiet. Be silent. Just go back to the village. Go back to your home. Don't go telling people. This constant refrain. Why? Because he was not to be distracted from his mission. He knew that he was the suffering servant. There was only one way in which he could take the sin of the world upon himself. Only one way. And it was not the path that Peter and many other zealots had in mind, it was not exaltation here on earth. The exaltation would come, but only after he had laid down his life. He had to be lifted up on a cross, and then all men would be drawn to him. Then the exaltation would come. This was the son's obedience to the father's will, and Peter was threatening it. You could imagine already he had his hand on his sword and he was going to prevent this from happening. And to that, to threaten Jesus' obedience to the Father's will, Jesus could see that the real enemy here, the one behind Peter's words, was Satan himself. 
And so it is met with, yes, quite a harsh rebuke. You see, it's quite possible that what happened to the blind man just in the previous passage was happening to Peter as well. Jesus touched him and said, what do you see? And he says, I see people, but they, they look like trees walking around. His sight was restored, but it was not entirely clear yet. It's a little bit like, I don't know if you've, if you've ever needed a pair of glasses and you've gone, gone to get your script and you sit down with your optometrist and they, they kind of put different lenses in front of your eyes and you're looking at the eye chart and they say, well, you know, which is better, this one or this one? Can't you sit on the fence? No. Which is better, this one or this one? And say, okay, that one. And then slowly, you know, at first it's all fuzzy and it's getting clearer and clearer and clearer. And then it gets so clear that, oh, gee, I really can't tell. Oh, I like both of them. You know, and this one or this one? I don't know. I don't know. Again, that one and that one. You can spend hours doing that. But basically they're nailing at that moment your script, the perfect script. Jesus says, what do you see? People, but they look like trees. Well, that's not good enough. Let me, let me just help you a little bit here. Peter, who do you say I am? You're the Messiah. That's good, but not quite good enough. Let me explain. We can have a revelation of who God is. We can, we can have that moment where we are saved and we come to know him as Savior. But coming to know him as Lord, that's a journey. And there are many revelations along the way. There are many moments with Jesus where, okay, let me just adjust things a little bit here. And that moment where you think, got it nailed. I have the perfect script. I know everything there is to know about Jesus. Guess what? Suddenly you're seeing trees. There's a little bit more for you to learn and a little bit more for you to learn and a little bit more for you to learn. And then you get to the age of 75 and apparently there's a little bit more for you to learn. God wants to give us absolutely clear vision. He wants to touch our eyes again and if needed again and if needed again and again and again. He wants to continually reveal himself to us so that we can see him for who he really is. His glory is so important. In this instance, who did Jesus say he was? Not sure that Peter got it. When Jesus used the reference son of man, that might just mean I'm a human being. Later on, they would realize, oh, no, 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 he didn't mean that. He wasn't just saying, I, a human being. This is a reference to Daniel. Daniel, chapter 7. Every time, and it was Jesus' preferred designation when he spoke of himself, it was son of man. Why? Because it would ultimately lead his disciples and followers to to an understanding of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Every time Jesus said or referred to himself as Son of Man, what was he thinking? This is what he's thinking. There before me, Daniel saw in a vision, was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. Who can approach God but the Son of God? He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's the Son of Man. That's who Jesus was declaring himself to be. 
John. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Chapter 10, verse 31, he said, I and the Father are one. And for this blasphemy, the Pharisees wished to stone him. Jesus was declaring who he was and who he says he was is everything. Today it is common, I guess, to, to all have our own opinions on who Jesus is. And we can sometimes just pick and choose, can't we? Back in the old days, who remembers the thing called a promise box? You remember a promise box for you young people? Yeah, Frank does. It was a little, a little box, and it was a nice idea. It had lots of little scriptures in it, and you could pick out a scripture every day. Well, now we have verse on the day on our, on our iPhones, and we don't need it. But before there was verse of the day, we'd have a promise box. And you'd pick it up, and you'd scroll it, and there was a lovely promise. Very few of them I found in that little box actually challenged me to live a more Christ-like life. They were, they were lovely promises, and here was the lovely, sweet, nice Jesus in a box. Very nice. We, 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 wouldn't, we wouldn't make that mistake today, would we? <laughs> like we wouldn't, I don't know, we wouldn't kind of start to segment Scripture and kind of say that certain parts are more important than others, like, you know, ah, Old Testament's confusing, epistles confusing. Just go for the Gospels. They're not all that's in the Gospels, just red-letter Christianity. Would we do that? Would we do that? Would we, would we break every hermeneutical rule in the book and just pick out the pieces of Scripture that we like? It's always, it's always a risk, frankly. We need to read, read the whole of Scripture and let God, with, yes, mystery, speak to us through his whole word and receive the whole message and ultimately commit ourselves to, to this one task, to understand who do you say you are, Jesus? I wonder whether, wonder whether this morning you'd like a fresh touch from Jesus of your eyes, a new revelation of who he is. Perhaps it once was clear, but life has a way of muddying things, doesn't it? And I wonder if this morning you'd like to just receive from Jesus another touch. What do you see? Well, I, <laughs> I do see things, but it's not as clear as it could be. And maybe you need Jesus to come afresh and to, and to touch your eyes. Well, what does that look like? What could that look like? In John chapter 14, verse 25, here's a promise for you, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit, as our teacher, is constantly bringing to life God's word and, and ministering it to us so that we can understand more clearly. But here's a special verse. I wonder if you know this. 
Maybe you've glossed over it, but it might be significant to us once again this morning. In verse 21, John chapter 14, verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. This is interesting. It, it really is very, very John 15-ish. The abiding life and obedience. Whoever obeys my commands, they are demonstrating their love to me, and that will result in fruit, which, well, I will love them too and will reveal myself to them. Glory. Jesus is essentially saying here, do you want to see me more clearly? Do you want to know who I say I am? Would you like those, those trees to turn into people? Would you like to have your, recite, your sight touched? Would you like a fresh revelation from me? Because I love to reveal who I am. Would you like that? Well, here's the formula. You show me your love through obedience. And I show you my love by showing you myself. I recall many years ago, I was in a situation where people were saying certain things about me that weren't true, and I was, you know, kind of misunderstood, and the repercussions of it was that, that we, as, as missionaries at the time, would have to have to pack up and leave the country and so forth. And actually, it wasn't just about my reputation, to be quite honest, but it was about the impact that this would have on the family, and it was kind of a, it was a, kind of a big deal. And besides, what people are saying aren't true. I just, need to, I just need to kind of correct the misunderstanding. And God said the most surprising thing to me, Stuart, say nothing. Now, for somebody who likes to speak, that was kind of difficult. <laughs> but it was clear, Stuart, zip it. I don't want you to vindicate yourself. And I thought, ah, because you'll vindicate me, God? I never got that promise. I never got a promise that God would vindicate me. I just got a command, I believe, don't vindicate yourself. I think it's one of the hardest things I've ever done. <laughs> That act of obedience, of whoop, I'd be talking to someone and, and all of a sudden I'm thinking, I so want to tell you the situation. I so want to tell you my perspective. I so want to zip. Man, that was hard. But that was my act of obedience. But through that obedience, I demonstrated my love for God and my trust in him. And there was a reward. He revealed himself to me in a way I had never seen. As I demonstrated my love to him, he demonstrated his love to me in that he manifested himself. He revealed more of himself to me than I had previously known. In that time, I, I learned two things I think about God. One, how much pleasure he found in my obedience that I brought God pleasure. Wow. And two, I discovered that his approval, not the approval of others, his approval was enough. 
That was a powerful lesson. That was a very powerful lesson. I wonder what God would like to reveal to you this morning. Do your eyes need a fresh touch? Would you like a fresh revelation of who he says he is? Would you like things that are blurry to become clear? Would you like to see him just a little more clearly? Would you like to grow? Would you like to climb out of that rut? Would you like to experience more of God? Then I believe God would say to you this morning, oh, I'd love to reveal myself to you. That's how I show my love. Now, here's how to obey me. Here's your next step of obedience. Here's what I'd like you to do. Come, be my disciple. Follow me. Here's the next step. Seems crazy, doesn't it? Trust me. The things that you are going to see through this very simple act of obedience that I'm setting before you, the things that you are going to see is worth everything. Your total commitment, your total sacrifice, all that you have, it's worth it. You'll see, you'll see, you'll see. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus. Just to see you a little more clearly. It's quite possible. That whatever rut we're in, that whatever obstacle we face, that whatever it is that is going on in our life, that, that might at this present time feel insurmountable, it's quite possible that a fresh revelation of you will completely and utterly answer the cry of our heart. will answer more completely and more fully the deepest need that we have in quite an unexpected way. And so we invite you into this moment and we invite you into our lives. We ask that you would touch our eyes afresh with a revelation of who you are. Please, Jesus, come. All of us, touch our eyes. Restore our vision. Draw us to you. Woo us. Bring us to a place of worship once more. Let faith rise within us. Bring about that sense of awe and reverence that you deserve. Glorify yourself. Be seen for who you really are. Do this, please, Lord. Do this, we pray, whatever the cost. We're being assured this morning that it's worth it. So come. Touch our spiritual eyes, we ask. In your name, Jesus.